0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Mad in America podcast. And this week, I'm delighted to have been able to chat with Dr. Stephen Hayes. Dr. Hayes is Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behaviour Analysis Programme at the Department of Psychology, the University of Nevada. An author of 45 books and over 625 scientific articles, his career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of relational frame theory, an account of human higher cognition, and has guided its extension to acceptance and commitment therapy, a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. Dr Hayes has been president of several scientific and professional societies, including the Association for Behavioural and Cognitive Therapy and the Association for Contextual Behavioural Science. He was the first secretary treasurer of the Association for Psychological Science, which he helped form, and has served a five-year term on the National Advisory Council for Drug Abuse in the National Institutes of Health. Dr Hayes received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy and was recently named as a Fellow in the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In this interview, we talk about his recently released book, A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters, which uses the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy to help readers overcome negative thoughts and feelings, turn pain into purpose, and build a meaningful life. Welcome, Dr. Hayes. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to chat with me for the Mad America podcast. I'm really uh, grateful to get a chance to talk to you about you, your work, and, and your recent book, A Liberated Mind. But to kind of start off with, I wanted to ask a little bit about you and, and how it was you first became involved with psychology.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I really respect the work of Mad America, and I'm uh, glad to be able to have this conversation you know, I decided uh, in high school to go into psychology because I, I cared about human complexity and and I really wanted to be about lifting human beings up. And I, I had an interest in art and literature and directed a literary magazine in college and so forth. But uh, at the same time, it didn't seem to me that art, literature, and, and these kinds of institutions that delve into the depth of human experience are necessarily progressive. I mean, is are we any better writers now than Shakespeare? And no, Probably not. And so how do we do something that's progressive? You know science was the way to do it. But uh, I looked around and decided, uh, you know, there is one field that maybe combines those with psychology. And boy, was that the right decision. I've had just a, a wonderful, fun time my whole life pursuing this idea of trying to uh, create a psychology more worthy to the challenge of the human condition. And uh, that's really what uh, uh, ACT is about and the larger community we call contextual behavioral science with its uh, efforts in basic science to understand how cognition works, with aligning uh, ourselves with evolutionary biologists to try to understand how we evolve that way, how can we evolve purposely in a better way, and then how to put that into, as I usually say, the smallest set of processes we can focus on that do the most benefit and so uh, that's been a journey i'm on and it started uh, long ago with a a high school student making a pretty intuitive but good guess that you could mix the depth of human experience and the analytic precision of science inside psychology
0: excellent thank you in in kind of preparing for this interview, obviously, I'm kind of reading a, a Liberated Mind, which we'll come on to talk a little bit about. But also, I watched a fascinating TEDx talk you gave in 2016 yeah. in, in Nevada, and you powerfully described your own experiences with dealing with panic disorder. And there was a a moment in that talk where you you sat cross-legged on the stage, and the audience was transfixed, and you looked so vulnerable. And so it was so real, unlike, I think, any other TED Talk that I've seen, and I've seen seen quite a few. And you you mentioned that you described making a promise not to run from yourself. So I wondered if you'd kept that promise to yourself in the intervening (laughs) years.
1: Boy, every day I violate it in little, little ways, but it's the core, it's the pivot of my life, you know, the... The metaphor that's in the liberated mind are these pivots where you take energy that's inside the things you're doing that are massively screwing your life up and you not do it on purpose you're trying to do a good thing but things get smaller and smaller tighter and tighter narrower and narrower more and more dysfunctional and taking that energy and put it in a new direction and that tedx talk uh shows me hitting bottom really and uh, it was a hard talk to give i A few minutes before I went on stage and grabbed my wife, looked in her eyes and said, I don't think I can do this. And the this that I couldn't do, it wasn't talking in front of a group. Uh, It was revisiting uh, a place where you feel as though everything is lost and there's no way forward. And I I didn't want to do the talk if I just talked about it. And uh, there's a scream you heard if you saw the TEDx which happened once when I was caught in a machine at work, working in an aluminum mill, making aluminum foil, a gigantic house-sized machine where I'm down inside it and they forget that I'm in there and they turn the machine on and almost chop me in half. I still have a dent in my leg all these years later. And then once at the bottom of my panic disorder and then in that TEDx talk, and I'll never make that scream again because, you know, you forget... When you move forward and life opens up, you forget what it was like when you didn't have an answer, when there wasn't a way forward. My wife looked me in the eye and said, just be yourself. So that's what I try to do. And every day I'm violated in small ways. We all have that pull to that little dictator voice within that tells you if you, Put on the right mask, the right face. The Greeks had a name for it. They called it persona, from which we've d- adopted the word personality, just to give you a sense of how deep we are, that even the name for how we are in the world is a name for a clay mask. Think about it. We put that on and we we walk out our front door and we walk through our day and over and over again, getting tempted to... Uh, tell only half the truth or only be there partially or only connect with others to a degree and um, you know i think it's okay that we never are practically perfect in every way it's okay that we're not as big as we could possibly be but it's not okay to sort of settle inside a place where you say this far and no more um, because the, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. Bob Dylan, he got it right. So, yeah, that TEDx talk, people will see it. That's not a performance. That's uh, me revisiting hell.
0: Well, it, it was it was really affecting because you know it's. It, um you know, you clearly talk about science and you kind of, you know, as a viewer, you're expecting a scientific kind of debate, as, you know, many of these TEDx talks are. But, you know, you, you presented the science through a very human lens, through a very human lens. And, and, you know, again, I find that in a liberated mind is written from a, with a very human focal point rather than cold science. And that certainly ap- appeals to me because emotions are messy, messy things that don't always conform nicely to scientific theory. So, uh, I've found that talk particularly affecting.
1: Well, I did make that decision in the book and I actually have made that decision in my life. Really, that's the core of my life is how to empower people to be able to be their whole selves with all kinds of problems. I mean, there are people walking out there with chronic pain. There's people walking out there with hallucinations. There's people walking out there with you know, a horrible abuse history, and there's no way to run from those things. And so can we empower each other to sort of step into the whole of our experience and stop waiting to be fixed before life can start? We're not broken. We're not going to be fixed. We're growing, we're developing, we're living, and that's the process. When I wrote A Liberated Mind, I wanted to tell the full science story of psychological flexibility and all the wonderful things that a a very large community, literally tens of thousands of people now, but hundreds of really active researchers and contributors and authors and so forth. To tell that story and 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 to link it up to modern life and i decided to tell my personal story in part because i thought uh you know nobody's going to care about the geeky science stuff i mean except geeky science people and i'm already in those geeky talks with them you know so why write the freaking book write another textbook or science book and i've written what it was 45 46 books or edited but this is the first one where i try to tell my personal story and uh, it's been an adventure. It actually makes these uh, talks, uh, podcasts and so forth uh, sometimes emotionally challenging and um, but not in a negative way. I mean uh, it, it, but it, you feel vulnerable walking inside that history and it made writing the book especially so. Uh, it was a painful, painful book to write because uh, uh not because it was difficult, it took eleven years, it was difficult, but because I felt so uh vulnerable i didn't end up writing a full autobiography, as you know it 's just a little light story woven in like how uh, TV shows sometimes have subplots, uh, but the arc of my story and the arc of the science story and the arc of the community, you know what's happening worldwide is interlaced with these uh, core flexibility processes and has been ever since we you know created the uh, problem of language and cognition sitting atop these uh, half a billion year old learning processes and so that's our task as a culture that's the journey we're on as a species and uh, i tried to share how that's the journey that we're on as a scientific community, but also my personal journey.
0: And so I, I wonder, Dr. Hayes, if we could just spend a moment or two just talking about acceptance and commitment therapy, um, sure. you know, and, and kind of how, you know, how it works to perhaps help and support those who who, who might be kind of suffering and, and you know, perhaps sure. looking for, for other resources. Sure. I'm
1: happy to do that. I'm going to have to get you to say ACT, though. ACT to me, I'm old enough to know how common ECT was. And it always sounds to me like, oh, I'm about <laughs> to uh, witness that horror show. What act is is um, based on the psychological flexibility model, where we we did the science work, the basic science work, really pulling cognition at its joints, how does it work, even coming up with an entire new and vigorous theory of cognition that isn't just blah 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 theory. It's several hundred studies now, and we can use it to train language with kids who have a hard time acquiring it, or establish a sense of self with uh, autistic spectrum disordered children, etc. So we really wanted to go to that basic, uh, but what the uh, act is is a combination of acceptance and mindfulness pro- processes. I call them pivots in this book, and uh, uh, commitment and behavior change pivots, mm-hmm. for the purposes of being able to be in your moments with your history in a way that you can learn from it, be open to it, see it, but not get entangled with it. And that you as this conscious human being that's contains and, and is, is uh, sort of more than any one set of experiences, but this awareness part of you, be able to bring your attention flexibly, fluidly, and voluntarily to what's of importance inside and out in a given moment. And then to kind of remember or to touch or to choose or to step up to what are the qualities of being and doing that you want to put into your actual behavior and and then build habits around that and i've just said six processes Uh, it turns out if you any one of those if you uh, mess them up you're going to have problems the more you mess up the bigger the set the more problems you're likely to have we know that now with studies with literally thousands of people followed as long as a decade and we can watch lives unfold. And if you are closed off to your emotions, wrapped around your thoughts, fixed in your attention to the conceptualized future and the ruminated past, if you climb into that persona mask, that little clown suit, and try to say, I am the evaluative things you say, the the kind sweet intelligent wonderful or the damaged broken sad and pathetic whatever the adjective is you climb into that clown suit and then you put life on hold and you say well i first have to get myself fixed before i can really care about anything everything goes south everything is uh, likely to you know get narrower and more rigid You know, if you look at suicide notes, about 65% of them say, I won't hurt as much when I'm dead. And some of them say, and people will be sorry. Mm. And if you look at those two things, what have you got? I'm right. And this is too much. Mm. And this is your own experience. And it's because it's a side effect of something that's massively useful to us, which is being able to use symbolic language to problem solve. And that's great when you're doing your taxes or fixing your car. It's just horrible when you apply it to your own history because, of course, you're going to say, well, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. I want this one. Well, we don't come packaged that way. Our nervous system doesn't have a delete button. You don't wipe out your memories and then start living. I mean, we're not living in the matrix. And good thing we don't. We're not because we'd be so stupid as to. You know, one what what of those movies where you actually can go and they literally were like, wipe out your brain like a hard drive. We're so stupid, we'd probably do that. You know, that's how hard it is to be uh, whole and free as a human being who has this symbolic capacity. But if you take advantage of what, after all, is in our wisdom traditions, our spiritual traditions, but do it in a modern way. I don't think we're going to do it by necessarily doing sin only 10 day silent retreats or whatever chanting or you you name it or koans but could we instead learn how to put the mind on a leash to open up to our emotions to come into the present moment consciously and to focus on what we care about and build the habits around that and the answer is yes we can we can do that and now that we know that's what's really critical That's the 20% that does the 80%. -hmm. It greatly simplifies what we have to do. I mean, you can use lots of methods, not just ACT. I mean, it turns out a lot of the things that are out there that are helpful work through these processes. That's what ACT is, is trying to dig down to the psychological flexibility processes and flip them from closed, mindless, and waiting for life to start to open Aware and actively engaged in life.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. I think in, in in my reading, one of the things that I quite liked about ACT, particularly, was you know, and this is not not about my experiences. This is about you. But in in my experiences of past therapy, it's almost always been a, a conflict. It's always almost always been a deny your thoughts or challenge them or make them go away or deny them. You know, try and take the power away, but I came to see acceptance as a a really powerful tool for having a dialogue with the the person inside yourself. So, you know, I I wondered if we could talk a bit about how powerful acceptance is as as part of that process.
1: It's massively
0: powerful. And it's,
1: you know, when people hear acceptance, they probably mean, think, oh, you're talking about tolerance. You're talking about resignation. You're talking about giving up. You're going to talk about putting up with it. You're talking, no, it's nothing like that. It actually comes from a Latin root. That means to receive, and in the early use of the of the word in Latin, it was to receive as if to receive a gift it 's still in English, i suppose uh, uh, around the world uh, in in all the different english speaking communities they still have this, but where we we take a precious gift and you give it to someone, and as you give it to him, you say, "Here would you accept this?" You know, why'd you say accept? It's because it's a word that means, will you willingly take it in? You don't mean, will you tolerate this gift? Would you put up with this gift? Would you resign yourself to receive this thing I made for you? No. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, apply it to emotions, let's say. Emotions are the echoes of your history into this current situation. And... Yeah, I get that we have a value to judgmental mind that can categorize them into, you know, good emotions, bad emotions. But if you stop and think about it, even for a few seconds, every single emotion has a place. If I said to you, you can only say good or bad. Uh, what do you think of when I say happy? You'd say good. I'd say sad. You'd say bad. Yeah, but. If somebody close to you dies, does that mean that you're not supposed to be sad? Are we that dumb? And the answer is yes, we're that dumb. (laughs) We're that dumb. I mean, you won't be in the new DSM-5, two weeks of uh, sadness, and you're ready for pharma to solve the problem. I mean, think about that. How anti-life can you get? And meanwhile, what is the gift? There's a gift there. I tell the story in the book of, you know, dashing to my mother's side when I heard that a little bout of pneumonia had turned for the worse, but was as she was just about to turn 93 years old and, you know, flying down on Southwest Airlines to Phoenix from Reno and getting there in t- just in time for her to know that I had arrived, but after she no longer could speak just in the downturn and then sitting by her bedside and gradually gradually watching her die you know is the not gradually watching but watching that gradual process and having the nurse come in and say oh yes it won't be too long now as if it's completely normal because she's seen thousands of deaths Mm -hmm. and then that last breath came or another one didn't follow You know, that's tremendously sad, but man, it's sacred. I would, I'd pay a hundred thousand bucks to be there because what is that sadness? What is the gift? It's the gift of remembrance of the love that you have. Are we so anti-life that uh, remembrance and honoring love is a bad thing? But, you know, if you gather when somebody has died close to you, there's predictors of complicated grieving, and you can pick out the people who are going to have a hard time with it. The obvious one is absence of tears. Mm. You can't cry, you get stuck. But here's another one. George Bonanno's done this work, absence of laughter. Think about it, and you'll see. Remember the time he put a... A lampshade on his head and danced on the table, and everybody laughs at how crazy Uncle George could get when he was drinking or whatever, or honor, you know, you remember that time when he stood by you when you were having those problems, and even though you had done some really stupid ass stuff, he still loved you. So life is a rich soup. it's It's not sugar soup. The mind wants sugar soup. And so what acceptance does is to open ourselves up to the validity of our own experience. By validity, I don't mean the interpretation that your mind gives you. I mean the felt sense that comes when you're willing to experience your own experiences fully and without needless defense. And yeah, initially, that might seem overwhelming if you've spent a long time not feeling what you think, not remembering what you remember, not thinking what you think. Yeah, you got a little bit of work to do, but that's okay. That's okay. One step at a time. We're on a life journey. And no matter how big you get, there's more big to get. And right at the edge, right at the edge, whatever it is, your mind's going to say, yeah, you can do all those other things, but you can't do this. You're not big enough for this. You have to run from this. You know, so Mother Teresa gave a talk to the UN and dressed down the UN as to how they were handling people who were poor. And she said she was terrified before she gave the talk. You know, so you can win a Nobel Prize and still be terrified. You know, so don't be telling me that you can't walk a whole journey as a whole and free person because of your pain or because of the abuse history or because of, you know, I'm with you. I'm about how hard that is, but I'm also never going to sell you short. Uh, and let's see, it's let's see, let's see what would happen if we do this counterintuitive thing of instead of running away, we turn towards, I I tell the story of how I uh, uh, maybe some of the seeds that uh, helped me with that night on cross-legged on the carpet when i think i've lost everything and 10 15 minutes later i find my life's work watch the ted talk if you want to see it you know after that scream some of the seeds you know i i see there i i tell the story of being a a very young child and terrified of uh, dinosaurs in my dreams they'd come and look in the bedroom with eyeballs that were big as the window, and you know, you'd run to another room, and they'd find you out, <laughs> and eventually you'd break, you'd just say, I couldn't stand it, you'd run out of the front door in my dreams, and then I would run, and no matter how fast my little five-year-old legs could go, they were faster, I'd turn this way and that, they could turn faster, they could anticipate where I'm going, I would turn a corner, they'd be there, and eventually they'd catch up, and they'd bite me, and then I'd wake up. And somewhere in there, I, I had a lucid dream. And I, and I thought, you know, when they catch me, I'm going to wake up. And I turned and ran toward the dinosaur and jumped in its mouth and woke up. And then I, I remembered that often enough that I did with some regularity. And then the dinosaurs went away. They don't like that game. <laughs> well, what would happen if we turned and ran towards our own Feelings of shame when we've let people down or lied or cheated or done something or feelings of abandonment when we've been betrayed or let down or feelings of fear when we've been abused or we're not safe. You know, there's no delete button in the nervous system. And I get that's hard. But I also know that whole human beings can do that and be about something in their life that's bigger than you know, trying to wipe the hard drive clean, chemically or otherwise. So that's, uh, that's the game that we're on in the, uh, the ACT community. And, and acceptance is that powerful turn towards emotion, painful cognition, etc. Now, to do that, you need some additional skills. These flexibility skills form a set. And I walk through why they're a set in the book. And you can do them iteratively. You can't. You don't have to do them all at once. But if you only do one and you don't do the others, then it's really hard. For example, if have tried to do acceptance without reining in judgment. You got your mind just screaming at you that this is going to kill you. You're going to die. You're going to, you know, and it's, and you've got to learn how to rein in the language dictator. Put them on the leash. If you don't have any attentional flexibility, you'd be constantly focused only on the the contributions of your past to the present moment and not on the possibilities that are in the present moment that might not be informed by your past. There may be new things here. Yeah. Well, you better have attentional flexibility. You better be able to focus on what's of importance, what's new, what's different, what, what the environment affords inside now, what it allows.
0: One of the things that, you know, I, I'm, as, as I mentioned, I'm just kind of getting into the self-help part of the book, but I like the way that it ex- explained to me that we, we can't prevent bad or distressing things happen to us, but we can give some consideration to how we relate to those experiences. And and that, that, you know, was a signal of hope to me that we might not need to be a prisoner of those experiences that actually we we can perhaps get some distance from it and put a language around it and a framework. And, you know, I, I think ACT really appealed to me from that point of view. Yeah, that distance, that healthy
1: distance. It's not. We're talking. I'm not talking about dissociative distance. We're talking about healthy distance. I mean, think. think, Imagine, kind of, uh, if somebody had painted a magnificent painting. This a drop dead beautiful painting, and you're trying to appreciate it, looking at it with your nose literally uh, touching the canvas. You know, you have no idea what that freaking painting is. And so what we do is we teach people to step back a little bit, not to dissociate or disconnect, but so that you can appreciate and describe. And when you step back from the mind, for example, you can see this evolutionarily recent adaptation. I mean, it's only a couple hundred thousand years old, a couple million years old. How do we know that? The language trained chimps don't do it. Your 12 month old baby does. And if your 12 month old baby doesn't do it, that baby doesn't. Develop language. Do what? Well, for one thing, you give an object a name and then say the name, the baby looks for the object. We're the only creatures on the planet that do that. The only one. Please don't send me an email about your smart dog. (laughs) I know your dog's really smart, but in controlled studies, you have to train it in both directions to get a two way street. With human beings, you train it in one direction, you get a two way street. That's what a symbol means. It means to throw back as a like the ball, like in bowling sim, like in similarity symbol, you know, like, so you, you know, when you even say a single word and you, you could close your eyes and imagine things and so forth, because that little action throws back as a like, and then building on that, not just alike, different, better than opposite to comparison and nearly four or five years into that, you've got, if this, then that, And then you've got mental outcomes that you can weigh. This one's better than that. Well, that's great for problem solving. That's wonderful. Yeah, but your life isn't a problem to be solved. It's a process to be lived. And problem solving is only part of what you do. If you let it be all of what you do, it's so stupid. It'll say sad, bad, and tell you don't go to your mama's bedside. When she's dying because it'll be painful i mean think of how stupid that is how unloving that is and that's what the dictator within it doesn't know about how to do anything other than what it evolved to do and it's, it's a good thing And i'm glad i'm not a dog or a cat i want to be able to problem solve but i don't want it you know taking control of of all of me and so You know, we're on a journey. We're on a journey to try to um, step into how it is to be human beings with this evolutionary recent adaptation. And unfortunately, we're getting more and more challenges. For one thing, you've got that computer in your pocket. That'll expose you to what? Well, it'll expose you to horror, to judgment, and to comparison. Well, that's the toxic triad. I mean, it, it, you know, you, people now think they live in a world where, where people are constantly being killed, harmed, kidnapped. No, it's actually a safer world now than it's ever been in the history of the planet, objectively. And judgment? I mean, turn on the newscast and to see what you see there. Go on the internet. And comparison? You know, you want to see Donald Trump's bathroom? You want to see what a billion dollars will do to a gold-plated uh, uh, you know, mm. toilet seats? I mean, you could do it. You, you, well, just more naturally. You want to look at somebody's Instagram account? Boy, are they doing better than you. Mm. Look at that. Look how much fun they have. Look at, look at all the wonderful. Look how beautiful. Look at That's not how I feel. Yeah, because they're showing you their outsides, mm. not their insides. So you've got... Pain, judgment, and comparison. Wow. And then here comes the modern world saying, not only that, we'll challenge you with physical technology and empower you. It's wonderful things you can do with this computer. But wonderful. When we learn how to harness it. properly. But here's these other things. I'll give you lots and lots of quote-unquote medications. You can consume so much that if you catch freshwater fish you your... Streams, they'll have antidepressants in them because the sewage plants don't remove them. That's how much one out of four women in the US last year were on antidepressants. Something that's arguably only of use to severe depression, and even then only for a little while and taper it off and with the right rationale, not this brain dysfunction rationale that you can never get out of. And if we don't do something about it, I mean, the opponent processes you set up within your own body when you put it in a a new chemical space that's so different than anything we ever involved to be in. Well, you've got homeostatic processes that will fight that. I saw a, a mouse model last week showing that a single high dose application of opiates to mice makes them measurably more sensitive to pain for weeks because the whole body knows it's not safe not to be able to feel. I feel great, but I don't, I really can't feel anything other than woo you know? And if I were give voice to it, you know, not like mice or the nervous system has a voice, but we're trying to make it sensible, right? I, we better, we better make this more sensitive to pain because, because what would happen if we couldn't feel? Well, you know what happens if you can't feel? I mean, necrotic processes and leprosy means you leave your fingers in the fire, literally. Because you can't feel that they're there. They're caught in the door jam of the car, and you don't know that that happened. Why? And then you lose your digits. Of course you do. This isn't just the necrotic process. It's just you can't feel anymore, so you do unsafe things. Mm -hmm. Same exact things happen with our behavior. We're going to have to create a culture in which we can make room for the hell of our own history precisely so that we can live a life that's more worth living. What happens with some of the medications and stuff is that we move into the middle with the happy numb. The numb is not happy. The numb is numb. I I get that it isn't as painful, but it's also not as pleasurable. It's not as values-based. It's not as vital. It's not as vulnerable. So what the hell are we doing? And that doesn't mean that you'd never use it. We've done randomized controlled trials of ACT to help drug and alcohol counselors be more psychologically able to work with their clients to use lam uh, lamb or, uh, other, uh, you know, artificial uh, opiates to try to walk out of uh, a heroin addiction. I mean, I, why, because if you're addicted to heroin already, you know, I would rather have you on a legal form of it than going down to fourth street to get whatever your dealer can give you which might kill you if it's pure and practically kill you if it's filled up with toxic stuff. So I'm not here singing a song against medication, but I'm just saying something's wrong with the modern world where our image of a happy life is a smiley face button. And the way we think we're going to get there is by uh, numbing out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I was going to ask you about, um, I have a daughter, she's 10. And, you know, I've started to see some of these Tendencies in her already because you know it's funny having a child gives you some of that distance when you can witness the thinking in them that you might not be able to see in yourselves. And already she's seeing unattainable models of what she thinks is reality on television and you know on the internet and various other places. And you know, she compares herself to that, and of course, she comes up short because that's not real and it's difficult to tell her that although it's presented as reality, it's not. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on how can we encourage our children to be themselves and to live a meaningful life in this storm of unreality that they uh, you know are required to accept. Well we actually have some
1: data on that and, and the first thing to do is start with yourself. Why? Because your children learn most from that and they're watching you. You know we have data showing that when tragic things happen school shootings, terrible storms, 9-11, etc, you can predict the children that are going to develop PTSD, etc yes if they're psychologically inflexible if they're avoidant entangled um, you know trying to suppress uh, but an even stronger predictor in children is the psychological flexibility of the parents psychological inflexibility is a social disease you know we practically should put condoms over our heads before we talk to our kids because until we've done the internal work to sort of how to show up to our own emotions and thoughts and come into our own history and be able to do that in a way that's honest and, th- and that we can get over to these kind of values-based, loving, caring uh, journeys that are you know, one step at a time where we're trying to put things in our life that are built around what we really want to be about. Well, so that's the first thing to start with yourself, not in a selfish way, but in a re- responsible responsible way and Then the next one is we know that cultures themselves and by cultures. I mean the practices within a small group Even the larger Group that where things go beyond the lifetimes of the individuals these practices uh, live on that psychological inflexibility in uh, families or work sites or communities or nations also play out poorly and I think that's why we're seeing rates of suicide going up in our young people, anxiety, stress uh, depression more than a standard deviation higher than they were 30 years ago this is not just self report uh, some of it is I think some of the over medication frankly but a big, another big chunk is the culture is just very unwisely because of capital kind of reasons and You know, we're feeding inflexibility processes. So, the kind of things that you might do. Well, uh, what about not rescuing our kids from difficult thoughts and feelings? How about if we stand with them and explore them in a way that's open and curious and not judgmental? Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, Both of my kids developed night terrors, and I'm thinking of uh, my daughter who i think saw the movie gremlins or those little beasts you know with big teeth uh you know and, and then started developing night terrors couldn't go into the bathroom and stuff And i said to her why don't we create a little bed right here by your bed for them when they come because they're in you and they have no place else to go they're like little orphan monsters and i know they're scary and so forth but could we do something kind of kind for them? If, if they show up in the night, could you tell them you have a place for them right there in this little bed? We actually made a little bed thing with covers and a little pillow. And I I asked her to put her night terrors in the bed uh, next to her bed. And, uh, she very quickly, uh, was able to get up and go to the bathroom. And my son had a very similar thing and his, his, uh, I, I did a little, a little different with him, but he ended up much the same way. And he, I said, "How did you? How did you deal with your with your fear at night?" And he he took his hands and he folded them across his chest, as if you're holding something. And he said, "Daddy, I took my fear with me." You know, I'd go like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." You know, so I think we can create cultures that are more honest. We have a, uh, an exercise we do in, the, in ACT workshops where we sometimes take a self-judgmental word that you're really just fed up with, you're ready to let go of. You've done the internal work. You're not going to be dictated to by this anymore. And we then ask people to write it down in a single word with a big fat Sharpie and stick it on your chest like one of those little, hi, I'm George. Well, you just write down. And then you can't talk about it for about 15 minutes. We get up, we walk around and we look at each other's tags and every single one you could put on your chest usually. Mm -hmm. And they're things like liar or unlovable failure, fraud. This is the human condition. And, um, you know, could we create a culture where it's okay to share our values and vulnerabilities? Not dumping them on others. I don't mean, you know, disgorging all of your, you know, traumas at the next stranger you see. I mean, in a way that's caring and responsible, of creating a culture that's more open and sharing and values based. What would happen if we did that? And uh, you can do that with your children. And there's actually pretty good books on act uh, parenting skills. Mm-hmm. And, um, We've been able to show that they're helpful to children. Turns out, the same inflexibility processes, when you c- create measures for them, even with young children, predict outcomes just like they do with the the big human beings called adults. So, uh, uh, I like the fact that there's mindfulness training in schools now. Uh, I hope they're not pre- presenting it just as a relaxation method. I hope they're presenting it as a way to be more flexible yeah. and aware and uh, to be able to carry things that are hard.
0: You do talk about mindfulness in, in the liberated mind. And, you know, I, I think you mentioned that it's a little bit more than just being present in the now. It, it's it's kind of how you're present in the now, isn't it? So, you know, perhaps mindfulness has been taken over the, as this relaxation thing. But it, I think in the liberated mind, you say there's, there's more to it for people to get to grips with.
1: Oh, yeah. And the mindfulness traditions have always said that. Uh, even uh, uh, up to and including values, you know, like in the Buddhist tradition, I'm not a Buddhist and that's not where act came from, but I have gone back to look. It's in all of our mystical traditions, by the way. I mean, this isn't just Buddhism. You know, in those traditions, like take the Buddhist tradition, you have this thing called right action. Well, that's values-based action. And so in the traditions from which it comes, all these flexibility processes are in there. Mindfulness per se, you know, has been... Talked about more like being in the now but it's it should be one of being you know more emotionally open and being in there right way that affords perspective taking and connections between people and consciousness more emotionally open john kabat-zinn's definition is pretty good actually but i mentioned the right action because even there when they, when it was brought into the healthcare system uh, you know, there's not a big section of values in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And to me, that's not wise because I, I'm, I'm, if John's listening, I'm sorry, I'm not criticizing you. I love your work, but but what are we going to do about that? And don't tell me that these values will come naturally because some people will do things like, you take care of the kids, I got to go meditate. <laughs> like, we can take anything and turn it into junk. You know, we're really good at it in the West. You know? <laughs> so. Let's not have another round of uh, selfish uh, self-focus. But yeah, mindfulness in an ACT model involves these four flexibility skills of stepping back from the judgmental problem-solving mind and being able to notice it on the fly as it does its work, we call that diffusion, to receiving the gift that's offered of your history, occasioned in the moment in the form of sensations and memories and emotions we call that acceptance and then being able to allocate attention flexibly fluidly and voluntarily not rigidly not like what your teenagers do in front of their video games not like when you're ruminating or worrying but more like when you're open and able to Sort of move your eyes metaphorically to side to side, and to broaden your focus or narrow your focus depending on what the task requires, and to do that consciously from this part of you that's behind your eyes metaphorically, this deeper, more spiritual part of you, and then allocate, you know, use that to create right action for you. Right? How? How do I mean that? Well, what do you want to put in your life? What are the qualities of being and doing? What are your values? Not just your goals. I get you have goals, but Goals you can have and finish. I'm talking about the meaning of the journey, and that is more like the direction that it goes in than the destination it arrives at. Mm-hmm. So, and then use all those behavioral skills to actually build habits that are organized around that. Mm-hmm. So, mindfulness is the first four of those six processes. The commitment and behavior change ones are the the last two. Although, you know, in the present consciously is in both. So. When we talk about them, we usually talk about those parts as being shared. And when I said at the beginning of the act is uh, using acceptance and mindfulness processes and commitment behavior change processes to create psychological flexibility. That is a shorthand way of talking about all six of those. And psychological flexibility is our term for our, for the entire set. So that's what's in the liberated mind.
0: Great. Thank you. And and uh, I was curious, while, while I was reading A Liberated Mind, I, I was thinking to myself about what it must be like to try and apply science to chaotic, messy human thinking and behavior. And, you know, I, I know that in my own struggles, I've you know, read a really good scientific study, but then <laughs> when it comes to applying that to my own life, it's almost impossible because, you know, yeah. there's su- such a gulf between my personal experience and my thinking styles and all the rest of it and what the science says. So, you know, as, as a scientist yourself that's been working in this area for 30 years or more, how, you know, how, how do we bridge that gap between messy human behaviors and, you know, the science that, that might help us to organize that behavior?
1: Well, we had a strategy for it, and it's actually the strategy that comes out of the tradition I was trained in. I was trained as a behavior analyst, as a Skinnerian, actually, and I was unsatisfied with um, the solution with regard to language and cognition, and I wanted to do a, succeed in what actually Skinner tried to do of embedding it into evolutionary science. I wanted to actually do that and made progress on that. But, you know, that tradition... Uh, You know, the thing that brought me into the behavioral thinking was Walden too, because I, I, you know, early on, and you asked that question all the way, why, why psychology? And I said, you know, because I wanted, you know, to get into human complexity and people like Maslow at peak experiences and stuff like that. That's what I thought was cool. But I thought it has to be kind of good, tight science too. And I became dissatisfied with the more humanistic wing that talks a lot about human complexity and great and grand things but can't give you the little technical precision that we expect out of a, a more mature science and i saw in behavioral science and in behavior analysis all those rats and pigeons uh, really tight technique uh, technical terms i mean if you know if you define reinforcement tightly you know they can say exactly you know that's a reinforcer that's what it looks like schedules of reinforcement etc but they didn't have a way of doing it with cognition and but once you get over that the the core of it is let's get down to the principles and so the principles are flexible they can be applied and i think the reason why people roll their eyes at science is that it's lots of yada 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 theory sometimes where the principles have not been tested or it's how to do it. Bread recipes, you know, follow this thing, do this self-help book, your life. will. you know, but we're not a bread recipe. I'm not a, you know, a a loaf of bread. How do I apply that to, you know, the argument I had with my wife this morning? Well, if I can get it down to that smallest set, you know, the twenty percent that does the eighty percent, and we can find those principles, and and we've got some, you know, like contingency principles, you know, reinforcement learning, things like that. I got that. Well, we did the long slog to try to do that with language and cognition, with emotion, with consciousness, with attention, with values. That's the story that's told in liberated mind. Uh, uh, you know, that's the science story of it. The so what if somebody's listening is here's the cool thing when you understand the principles you can actually bring them down to normal human language and you can say them in a sentence or two you know open up to your emotions step back from and notice this process of thinking in flight come into the present with your attention being allocated flexibly fluidly involuntarily by this sort of person behind your eyes the same person that connects you to the person behind the eyes of the persons that you meet and then make some choices about what you really care about not as outcomes but as qualities of what you do the adverbs you know lovingly creatively genuinely you know those kinds of things and then take advantage of 100 years of behavioral science and build habits we know how to do that small steps repeated built into larger patterns you know it's exactly what created your bad habits when using to create your good habits and this is not hard it actually uh it, you know it's hard in the sense that will you ever be finished no are you ever like you know the master of act no i'm i'm certainly not this that's my wife and i've been at it for 40 years But excuse me for living, I'm doing better than I used to do. And that's for me enough. I'm on a journey. We'll see how far I go. And uh, knock on wood, you know. I think scientists have an obligation, if they're applied scientists, to be able to meet the challenge of your question with. Here are the principles. I actually say in a liberated mind here's what all consumers should expect of all the self help and all the stuff they get. Number one, is this evidence based? Has it been shown to work in sufficient controlled studies that skeptical scientists, not just the ones who are part of your camp, would agree that there's something of importance there? Number two, Do you know enough about how it works that you can explain it to a normal person? Uh, And is the evidence for that strong enough that skeptical science would say, not hallelujah, and yes, there's no doubt, and scientists never say that, but to say, yeah, that's uh, plausible and there's a reasonable amount of evidence that that's so. You know, my night on the carpet and the first book on act is separated by almost 20 years because I didn't run right out and say, hallelujah, I've got something you should use. I did three studies showing it works and then only published one, put two in the file drawer, even though they worked, because I thought it's not ready because I don't know how it works. But, you know, even the evidence-based ones, you take something like, mm. well, I'll say it, boy, it's risky, but I will. Traditional cognitive behavior therapy. I don't think we have enough evidence on, on why it works. And when we've done dismantling studies, it looks like most of it is probably based on the behavioral techniques that were there before the cognitive therapy part of it. The part that you were just talking about earlier of detecting, challenging, disputing, and changing your thoughts. When you do meta-analyses, you know, analyses of all the studies, that may not be what's important about that. And you have major, you know, component studies, dismantling studies with major cognitive scientists. I'll give an example, Keith Dobson, a huge CBT person, writing sentences like, apparently cognitive methods do not add to the outcomes of cognitive behavior therapy. You know, God bless him for doing it. I think he should win a prize for writing that sentence. But I think, you know, 20, 30 years later, you don't want to be writing sentences like that. And in the act community, we were pretty, I I know it sounds prideful, excuse me for it. And I know some of the scientists listening will roll their eyes, but look at the data. You know, we held back until we had some pretty good evidence of why it works through component analyses, mediational analyses. Normal people wouldn't know what those things mean. They're just the way that scientists play this game. We think we're ready. And uh, even though I'm not fully ready, I'm 71. And I said, oh, hell, it's time to write this book. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I'm out here talking about flexibility processes. And uh, as you read through it, Jim, I'll be really interested to see if you agree. It, it, it can simplify. You know, a drawer full of bread recipes, you got to learn them all one at a time. It doesn't have to be complex. You can remember six things acceptance, diffusion, flexible attention to the now from this perspective, taking sense of self, linking you to values and committed action. There's only six things and you flip it over. The six things are all have pathological forms, you know, a fusion experiential avoidance, uh, the conceptualized self, uh, inflexible attention, inadequate or unchosen or unclear values and uh, ineffective action habits. So, you know, let's, take the things we're doing that aren't working and start doing the things that are working. And the the book has so many little examples, case examples, tiny little techniques that uh, no matter what your problem, uh, you're going to be able to try them out. Mm. See, does it actually help
0: you? Yeah, absolutely. The feeling I get from the book so far that it's, it's less self-help for me and more self-discovery. You know, yeah. it's, it's more like finding an instruction manual that I misplaced for, you know, this complex machine that I've never really understood before. So, you know, I'm really grateful to you for putting that together in such an accessible form. I'm really enjoying it. And as we come towards the close, I notice on social media, you, you've you been using the hashtag, we hurt where we care. You know, I quite like that phrase. So just, just wondered if, you know, what was behind that?
1: Well, I think part of the toxic thing about what we've been doing culturally with trying to treat the evaluative judgmental mind as the only thing that we have and treating our own lives as a problem to be solved is that it's so easy to look at the places where we hurt and say, well, that's negative, I don't want that. But it's a guide to what you care about. It's it's an expression of what you cared about. And I use the example of uh, uh, being there at my mother's bedside you know, love and loss is one thing. Think about it. Love and loss is one thing, not two. If you have a child, you know that child's going to suffer, get ill, be betrayed, and die. Do you not know that? If you're there to witness it, it's going to be very painful. And the amount of pain will be precisely measured in terms of the amount of love and caring that you have. I mean, it's Point-to-point linked. So what if uh, we allowed ourselves to take our pain and flip it over and see what's on the other side? And instead of trying to erase or burn this piece of paper, we realize that papers have two sides and there's something else written on the other side. If you're um, socially anxious, my guess is you want to be around people. Otherwise, you'd just be a hermit. If you're depressed, my guess is you'd, you want to feel openly, fully, you know, otherwise are you creating a situation where where you're pushing down all those emotions because you don't know how to feel them, you know, and then why would things like, you know, walking into the enjoyment of activities, the power of behavioral activation linked to primitive reinforcers like nature walks or Appreciation of beauty. Why would that be so central to depression? Because you need to learn how to feel again when you spend so much time trying not to feel Mm. chemically or otherwise Mm. and in each case. So uh, I love the hashtag because it sort of says, let's start where we are, not where we're not. Mm. If you start where you are, you can kind of take a step from here. If you're hurting, can we find a way for that to lift you up and support you? And in the book, the six pivots are, for the first time, it's the only act book that really lays this out. What I try to do is dig down to the yearnings that are underneath the pathological things that we do, and then show that the mind gives you this smaller, sooner, but at the cost of larger, later thing where, oh yeah, you yearn to feel, I'll give you the solution, only feel good stuff, run from the bad stuff. And when you're running from the bad stuff, you feel better. But then the bad stuff get more dominant, you know. So you get into this kind of narrower, 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 narrower. In each of the areas that I've mentioned, these these six, that's true. So I show how, you know, yearnings for belonging and feeling and coherence and orientation and competence and meaning. These six yearnings or needs or motivations are underneath any successful life journey so here's the wonderful thing and it's in we hurt we care but it's there not just in the area of uh, you know pain and acceptance which is the primary focus of that one but it's there in all of these pivots the wonderful message is the guide to happiness is inside your own misery you got you do need to dig down to the kind of jewel that's lying underneath all that pony poop you know And it it doesn't initially seem like what you would want to do. And the science can help you do it in a way that's not wallowing. It's not poor me. It's not tears endlessly. It's taking your own experience and learning from it and finding that underneath the things that you're doing that are ineffective is a yearning that is a powerful motivation for new behavior channel it in a new direction and find like that pivotal moment on the carpet that you see in my TED talk see if you can find that in all of these areas that are repertoire narrowing and screwing you up that are kind of messing up and putting you into cul-de-sacs there's an energy inside there that is your ally and um, you're not broken your your misery is a, a flashlight into the darkness if you can find what's really inside it and that'll empower you to let go of uh, trying to get that motivation net that way just because it didn't pay off let's meet it in a way that does pay off Mm -hmm. and so i I try to show how people can do that and as you read jim you'll get into part two of the book a lot more of kind of self helpy things and then part three how this applies as i say everywhere that a human mind goes and uh, we show how it applies to relationships and high-performance situations, sports, dealing with physical disease, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, et cetera. Not as a one-size-fits-all, but in the spirit that you asked in this earlier question of you know, what can science tell us? It can tell us what the core principles are.
0: That's great. Thank you, Stephen. And just before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Well, the only thing I'd say is there's a, vast community out there if you're interested in act therapists, it's easy, easy to find uh, there's links uh, in in my website or in the in the book and you know if they want to um, explore this uh, more in addition just to a, a liberated mind which i I do hope of course people read uh, you know that uh, people look at the many many act books now that are out that might be applicable to the particular issue that people might have there's so many of them that uh, in english-speaking communities especially there's almost nothing you can name that doesn't uh, have a some pretty decent science around it and be a book to explore it so uh, there's people out there to support you in this journey but uh, you know check it out and see if it lands well with you. It resonates with you. It, it seems to actually give you some traction. And a liberated mind will give you a chance to look at that. And uh, if the answer is yes, pursue it. Uh, around the world, people have uh, lifted their lives up, uh, not as the panacea, it's not that, but just as the uh, 20% that does the 80% and can kind of give you the guidance of. Uh, the processes, the the pivots that are really most important to find somehow to move you forward from where you are.
0: Stephen, it, it's been fascinating to chat today. And, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying the book, you know, and there's not many psychology-based texts that I've read that I can really say that about, but it's really human. It's really accessible. It's really kind of makes sense and a lot of it clicks uh, naturally, really. So, I'm so grateful to you for writing it and for all your work and and for being willing to chat with me today for the podcast.
1: It was awesome to be here with you and have such a natural and flowing conversation. I hope I've been of use to your listeners.
0: So I'd just like to thank Dr. Hayes for taking the time to chat with me. And if you'd like to know more about his book, you can visit the website stephenchayes.com forward slash a dash liberated dash mind. As always, thank you for listening today, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.